0: 25 30 billion dollars to a 7 mile stretch of highway through the richest enclave in the country because the rich people who bought their homes above the highway have grown tired of the noise of the highway. Yeah, you think how do you think that would sell?
1: Not going to be all snow. A wintry mix is forecast for the listening area. <laughs> Let's go ahead and press play on episode 40. I'm Alex Kaufman, recording from the Colchester Studios of Vermont Public Radio, this time around the bull wheel. My guest today is going on 20 years reporting on the mountain sports industry from Colorado. Jason Blevins has been covering the business of snow, among other things, at the Denver Post since 1997. You've read his stuff, whether you know it or not. A lot's changed in skiing and the news media in that time, so we'll dig through it right after we pay some bills. Stay with us. Season three of Wintry Mix is supported by... Over 250 ski areas use Liftopia to reach millions of skiers and riders planning their trips. But what you might not know is that Liftopia's cloud store is also the most widely used e-commerce ticketing technology for ski area websites with over 100 North American ski resorts using the platform. Your team, your strategy, your customers partnered with the best e-commerce support and technology in the industry. Visit Liftopia.com and click Platform to learn more, or email partners at Liftopia.com to schedule a call today. All right, get on a plane, fly to Salt Lake City, and devour the powder at Snowbird in Little Cottonwood Canyon. With 500 inches average annual snowfall, seven-minute tram rides to the summit, and over 3,000 vertical feet, this will make your season. Check out fourth-night free slopeside lodging options or visit with your Mountain Collective Pass. Snowbird.com is step one. Step two is follow Snowbird on social to stay stoked until you arrive. World Cup Supply has served the ski resort, race, and event industry since 1991. Visit WorldCupSupply.com to see the complete selection of race gates, safety, and crowd control fencing, on-hill tools, poles, nets, you name it. If you are running a ski resort, an event, or an event at a ski resort, then trust World Cup Supply for the gear that ensures safety and success.
0: I expected the Rocky Mountains to be a little rockier than this. I was thinking the same thing.
1: That John Denver's full of shit, man. Wintry Mix 40. I'm Alex Kaufman from Vermont Public Radio this time around. And on the phone, we have Jason Blevins, been reporting for the Denver Post since 1997. Jason, are you up in the mountains right now or are you at your desk? Uh, I'm at
0: both. (laughs) I'm based out of Eagle, Colorado, so... I have a nice window looking out onto the mountains where it is blowing sideways.
1: Yeah. You guys are finally in a storm cycle right now, aren't you? Exactly. Good one too. When's the last time you got out? Oh, yesterday. Nice. Uh, take me back in time, Jason, before we get too deep into the, uh, reporting history, some of your work for the Denver post. Uh, what was your original hill? Where'd you grow up?
0: Uh, I grew up in Texas and we did vacations in Colorado, you know, once, twice a year. We'd go to winter park, Breck Keystone, that sort of thing. And then, uh, uh, out of college, 1992, moved to Colorado. Been here ever since, and, and try to ski as much as I can. And home hill has been forever, Mary Jane, and now it is Vale Beaver Creek, living up in the Eagle Valley.
1: Yeah, I spent a good number of years in Edwards and Minturn, even even one season in Redcliffe. Oh yeah, nice. Uh, you know, what do you think as far as the evolution of mountain sports in those 20 years is? You know, maybe the most change.
0: I would have to say the largest influence is this season pass war that we saw. You know, those came about about 1996 in Winter Park. They introduced a family and friends four-pack for 800 bucks, And that really triggered an entire sweeping change in the industry. And as you know now, Vail resort sold 750000 of its epic passes last year, which I would say is... If it doesn't beat, it's very close to the total number of season passes sold in North America combined from every resort. That's obviously the biggest change that we've seen. It's influenced everything. But another, I think one of the more interesting things we've seen in the resort industry is a transition away from real estate. You know, back in the day, what was it, 1999, 2000, Hal Clifford wrote a book called uh, Downhill Slide, a great book. But, you know, there's a a growing lament that the ski industry was going to become a – an amenity for condo sales, and the industry was going to lean towards real estate. And that, that was a valid concern. IntraWest, the largest player in the game at the time, had, you know, right around that time, around 2000, saw its total revenues skewed towards real estate, not skiing. So it was, it was a valid concern. But that has almost single-handedly was destroyed by the by Vail Resorts in the, uh, during the recession in Vail. obviously the largest resort ski resort operator probably in the world right now, they are 97% of their income comes from the mountain. And, you know, 1% comes from real estate, and that 1% is probably going to be zero in the next couple of years as they get away. Um, You know, Vail resorts is a big gorilla in the room, and there's a lot of reason to be critical of them. But one thing that they have done single-handedly by Rob Katz is return revenue from skiing to the mountain and not real estate. I don't think anyone really saw that coming in 2000 when there was that great concern that it was all going to be about condo sales.
1: Well, if a lot's changed in skiing in 20 years, a lot's changed in the news business as well. Uh, 1997 to now, uh, you were probably, what, were you even using computers? I mean, obviously, there wasn't much of a a website for the Denver Post in 97, or or was there?
0: There was one, but, uh, you know, when I started in 97, we had a computer in the newsroom that was connected to the internet. We signed up for it, I remember, you know, you'd go get your 30-minute session on the computer there, and that would be, you know, your internet time. It was a lot of same old sort of, you know, walking the beat and out on the streets kind of reporting that, um, you know, I I certainly miss those days, but wow, the internet's really made it a lot easier. Google, um, you know, to get information and databases and everything like that, and obviously, everything is moving online and to mobile and you know nowadays when we write a story we write an online story and a print story and that online story usually goes through you know four or five different iterations so
1: it's a lot of work. Is there a single story that's gotten the most views of any other that you've written?
0: Oh you know sadly nothing compares to any story about Peyton Manning but um, (laughs) yeah you know there's just the the real off the beat quirky stories seem to be the most popular. I, I wrote a story about a guy out of Utah that's been living in a cave and not using money. He's a cashless advocate. Um and he I, I don't know that story just went for years. I feel like I still get emails and calls from readers on that one. But yeah, you know, just interesting character profiles, trends, things like that, they they usually seem to stand out. People People will have an attraction in Colorado towards anything that's just so Colorado, right? Like the whole story just is like, man, that is Colorado
1: to a T. Well, speaking of Colorado, uh, you're in Eagle, so you're, you're near where I'm going right now. Um, and you have a lot of experience with this. How would you solve I-70 if you had all the resources you wanted?
0: Um, you know, I think it's more a matter of a special pricing on this Epic Pass, (laughs) you know, it goes down to Van Resorts. Um, you know, carpooling helps. Rail is the pie in the sky. I really don't see that coming in the next two decades. Um, you know, so maybe getting people, you know, more carpooling and, and public transportation buses and things like that. But I think there's a sweet spot with this Epic Pass where people might stop buying it. If it reaches a certain amount, what is it, $809? I think if it gets closer to 1000 thousand, twelve hundred 1200 that will really limit the number of people who buy it and and move it down now you know i don't want to put the entire i-70 corridor issue on the shoulders of vale resorts but you know it's really as someone who lived in the front range and drove up to the mountains regularly you can work around that you know if you leave at four o'clock in the afternoon on a saturday you're going to sit in traffic if you leave at eight o'clock you're not going to hit any so it's really you know it's just about some education and, and maybe better timing of your trips, you know, you have to leave pretty early in the morning to beat it. But if you leave the night before, you know, you can work it. But even the Friday nights right now are just as bad as the Saturday morning. So generally my answer was move to the mountains.
1: That's a good solution. Have you seen those stories uh, recently in the Vale Daily, or probably everywhere, uh, about burying the highway in Vail so they don't have to look at it?
0: Yeah. Now, talk about pie in the sky, my... Yeah editors were interested in that and, and we'll maybe you know take a look at that but i i can just imagine the public outcry when cdot Colorado department of transportation and the federal highway administration direct 25 30 billion dollars to a seven mile stretch of highway through the richest enclave in the country because the rich people who bought their homes above the highway have grown tired of the noise of the highway. Yeah, you think? How do you think that would
1: sell? Maybe about as good as uh, as legal weed. Let's talk about that for a second. So yeah, you guys have been legal go. for a couple of years. There any impact on tourism? Any impact on day to day life that um, is kind of now showing itself? Now that you've had it for a few years.
0: Um, you know, the ski industry saw record uh, record visitation following the legalization of that, and. You know, everyone in this industry will tell you it's the biggest non-issue ever. Um, it, it really hasn't changed anything in terms of, say, police response or, or you know, behaviors in, in mountain towns or anything like that. Even though mountain towns, you know, some of them, Breckenridge, they are seeing 75 to 90% of their marijuana sales are to tourists. So it's obviously a draw. It's obviously important, an important element. But... The tourism officials in Colorado are will bend over backwards to not credit marijuana. Um, they they really don't want to be seen as promoting marijuana, which I've enjoyed watching because before marijuana, I've seen them promote cheese making tours and goat hotel stays and just about every little thing. If you can get 10 people to come to Colorado, they'd put it on colorado.com and put it in their vacation guidebook. But then they get probably the most interesting thing to happen in Colorado tourism ever and they ignore it which has been interesting because even though they ignore it it is certainly booming i think we're going to hit over a billion dollars in sales for 2016 and you know that is an incredible amount of tax revenue for the state but the state tourism officials are super reluctant to promote it citing federal law that prohibits marijuana and you know, in the amendment that passed, it we, we promised that we would not promote marijuana outside the state. Um, but you know, the thing about legal weed being the first in the country, it's you don't need a lot of promotion, word of mouth, and just the news stories. And you know, the Denver Post cannabis section has you know really done a lot to uh, to to you know really elevate that as as a, as a news story, not necessarily you know some sort of stoner state, you know, critical look at it as much as, you know, I, I feel like we treat it the same way we treat craft beer. We have, you know, the cannabis has like strain reviews and pipe and vape reviews. It's been really interesting and cool to see the, the newsroom treat it like a real news story. And I think we're sort of defining marijuana coverage as a legitimate, you know, it's just same as say a, a wine coverage or a, or a Beer, craft beer, columnist, or something like that. But in terms of tourism, it has unquestionably had an impact. But what that impact is, you know, some of their studies show anywhere from four to twenty percent of people um, are coming to Colorado for, you know, just exclusively marijuana. But I think you know it probably jumps in there with Colorado's vibrant craft beer, or Colorado's ski resorts, or all the different reasons people will come to Colorado: our rivers, our, our beautiful mountains. She had another thing, you know, we got another notch in the flagpole there to where people say, hey, you know, that's, that's another reason. Let's go try that. I mean, even I think older visitors are coming and saying, gosh, like, this is crazy. Let's at least go look. You know, they just go take their picture in front of the Cannabis Club sign hanging on Breckenridge's Main Street and send it to their friends back home saying, is crazy. This is so fun or who knows. But it's definitely an attraction. How much of an attraction? It really depends on who you ask.
1: Well, speaking of usage, backcountry usage, obviously on the rise. Um, You know, avalanche awareness and things like that. The force of social media pulling people into places where they maybe shouldn't be. Um, Do you see any any forces at play that might kind of put a check on that, or is it just going to continue to grow unabated and people will keep getting themselves into spots?
0: Well, you know, I think if you look at some of the sports, you know, SIA. Sports retail stuff. They are showing, you know, backcountry stuff. These boots with lock mode. The, the Vibram sold boots. The uh, AT bindings. You know, wider powder skis. Fastest growing segment in you know winter sports retail. Um, and so it's unquestionably growing. It's also impossible to quantify because obviously no one's counting how many people are going to the backcountry. But I went uh, this fall. I went to the International Snow Science Workshop there in Breckenridge, and it's fascinating. I've been to a few of those now. Or and you know, sort of covered a lot of avalanche danger and avalanche trends in Colorado and, and the West. And you know, it's this the industry in terms of safety is really shifting towards a lot of behavioral type of science and psychiatrists. You know, there are presentations by behavior therapists and behavior scientists and, and psychologists and all this stuff about how behavior is, you know, the next heuristic in avalanche danger. It's just this, you know. You need to really assess what you're thinking, group dynamics, how you're, you know, how you're interpreting a route, you know, and maybe how your friends are influencing your decision. And one of the new influences, great influences, obviously, is social media with uh, kids out there maybe thinking they're, you know, skiing for their hundreds or thousands of Instagram followers versus just really focusing on keeping themselves safe in dangerous terrain these kind of graying avalanche forecasters and educators are, are are struggling to really approach these kids and connect with these kids that are, you know, really driven by a lot of social media and influenced by social media. And, you know, they don't want to sit in judgment of those guys, those kids, but they need to figure out a way to maybe use the Instagram trends and... Twitter feeds and Facebook and stuff like that and use it as a tool to help promote safety. You know, there's discussion of maybe showing videos of kids digging pits and doing transceiver searches versus, you know, hucking big backflips into a starting zone or something.
1: Not a lot of places in the country where ski areas are coming and going, but Colorado has a few out there. Um, the ones that I'm aware of: Cimarron, uh, the folks talking about Worms yes. down by Pikes Peak. Obviously, there was something at St. Mary's way back when. that Echo is kind of coming and going. Uh, you know what's what's the latest and greatest as far as ski areas that are trying to get off the ground?
0: You hear some new ones. There's one outside of Steamboat that's uh, trying to rev up there at Horseshoe Reservoir. Um, you know, there's a, there's some folks out by. Uh, Fair Play in Alma, we we're talking about maybe a backcountry uh, type experience. I think if we do see new resorts popping up, they are going to be a lot different than what we saw 20, 30, 40 years ago when the last ones were coming online. You know, we're not going to see necessarily another Beaver Creek, um, but we could see another Silverton Mountain, you know, that those kind of smaller, private, single-lift uh, resorts that maybe access some, some good terrain for hiking and, and things like that. I, I think that's, that's a real trend in terms of, of new resorts, but at Cimarron, you know, those luxury clubs sort of following the Yellowstone model, a private ski area, you know, owned by a certain number of hand, a certain number of homeowners, you know, Cimarron club is just spectacular out there. In the on the Western slope outside of Montrose, it's truly an unbelievable ski experience and it's for 12 homeowners. Um, you know, of which I will never be one. <laughs> Not even if I count every dollar I've ever made. But it's. Uh, I think that's that's going to be a trend. Small, little clubs like that, um, backcountry type beaters. You know, a single lift that goes somewhere, and you sign twenty pages of waivers and go hiking from the top of that chair. The sort of Silverton Mountain model, which has really defied a lot of naysayers and thrived now in their sixteenth year.
1: Some changes in southwest Colorado, though, that I've seen. Um, New ownership, this James Coleman guy with Durango and and buying up some ski areas in northern New Mexico. You ever met that guy?
0: Oh, yeah. Went out. We were supposed to go skiing last year. It was kind of the first time I'd ever met him, and he turned out to have some, like, projects in mind. So we ended up, like, just sopping wet and working on rolling out a new snowmaking system on this one area for, like, eight hours. I'd... But my help all day long with him. It was a lot of fun. Turned into a, a nice, fun profile of him, but, you know, I sort of went there with the idea that we were going to go ski some Pal at his, at his resort. But that's a, you know, that's a new approach, too, these sort of regional tie-ins, you know, as a way to you know some way counter the role of the Epic Passes, the, you know, these Mountain Collective, which is a, obviously resorts around the around the nation. And then this regional approach that James Coleman's doing with, you know, some really small New Mexico areas tied with the Arizona snowball and the purgatory there in Durango. Um, you're seeing more of those regional associations and, and longtime competitors, maybe, you know, uniting in the face of, a, uh, you know, their resorts is just, I mean, it's really hard to compete against the Epic cast. It's just next to impossible, but I think as Vail Resorts grows and that Epic Pass reaches a certain price point, these little guys are going to start to, you know, really find more room to grow. Uh, You know, the Monarch ski areas of the world. I was just down there over the Christmas break, and those guys are really thriving. They're making a lot of money. There are a lot of visitors from Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico that maybe aren't interested in the big Vail experience and, uh, you know, Twenty thousand skiers on the hill and walking real far from where you park your car and you know having to buy a twenty dollars hamburgers and things like that. I think as Vail grows and becomes you know an even greater force in the ski industry, I think it's opening up opportunity for these smaller ski areas to really thrive. And you know people like Monarch and you know Silverton Mountain and even the Tellurides, the smaller sort of real niche. You know they got their own identities, they got their own cultures, and they have their own communities really so that's it, that's an interesting trend to, to watch out for these smaller regional cooperatives of ski areas that uh, coalitions that can maybe not they're not going to put a debt in Vail resorts but they're going to find room to grow despite the dominant you know industry player
1: this may or may not be the last time we touch on Vail resorts the uh, the gorilla in the room but do you think they're coming east
0: you know i think they want to it certainly would it you know, they've been really smart with their geographic sort of presentation. Um, you know, what they could do, who knows? You know, they'd obviously want something of a Killington caliber, you know, a big, big resort. Something that would fit into their, um, you know, Epic Pass stable. Uh, I'd, I'd imagine they are. that discussion is open. You know, I would watch for them. You know, they'll be looking in Southern California, too. There's a big resort down there that they would certainly like to have and, you know, give them entree to that Southern California market. And it's hard to imagine what they would do. Um, you know, they traditionally really only bought inexpensive hills, you know, bought hills that were kind of in duress. And then they go spend 15 times annual EBITDA for Whistler in a $1.5 billion deal. It's interesting. I, I know they want to be east. I guess we'll see if uh, if that ever materializes. I think they also want to be in Europe too, and they probably want a presence in Asia. And one thing I can tell you is they're not done growing.
1: Yeah, it sure smells like it. I asked you about I seventy once. So the one other topic that's Colorado centric, but also ski industry everywhere, affordable housing. Any progress on that? I mean, what do you see as a solution to that? That only seems to be kind of getting worse instead.
0: You know, I cover that really closely here in Colorado, and this is. One of these unusual issues that actually transfers down to major metro areas as well as tiny little towns like Crescent Butte and Telluride, and the influence of the short-term rental, the VRBO and the Airbnbs, has really decimated the supply of affordable housing in these um, in these communities. You know, from Denver and San Francisco to, like I said, Telluride and Salida and Crescent Butte. Um, There is no easy answer. Slida just uh, approved a project for 200 tiny homes that they're going to do, you know, to help ease their housing crunch. You know, Telluride's talking about rolling in some, like, FEMA-type trailers to help house employees that they can tuck away, you know, when when they're not in use. There there is no quick, easy answer on this, but most every town in Colorado is grappling with the short-term rental trend, trying to find a way where – Short-term rentals can be capped, controlled, regulated, somehow limited, somehow, you know, so they can maybe not have such an impact on the supply of affordable homes. Um, A lot of these homes that are turning into short-term rentals used to be available to workers on a long-term rental gig. And you can understand the owner saying, wow, I can make twice as much money. I get it cleaned, you know, 20 times a year versus once a year. Um, you know, I, I have more control over it. I can use it. You know, I can go on a weekend and it's not rented and, and put my own family in it. It, it. You know, you definitely see the appeal from a home, homeowner perspective. And it's hard to ask those homeowners to, you know, take a more community-minded approach and, and think of the workers when they maybe they've rented it to workers for a year and, you know, came to find there were eight ski bums living in their two-bedroom or whatever, like I used to do in Vail. Um, You know, it's definitely... It's definitely an issue. Some towns are, are really ahead of the curve. Summit County is way ahead of the curve. They just passed an additional extension of a sales tax to fund affordable housing. Um, Eagle County rejected its first ever tax to uh, develop affordable housing. It's it's a you know it, it takes a community approach. Um, you know it takes some extra sales tax revenue or some sort of revenue stream to develop these kind of houses and subsidize the affordable housing, but you know, more and more resort companies like Vail, again, and other employers are noting that it's just absolutely critical that they find a place to put their workers, you know, and this isn't just necessarily your lift operators. It's, you know, in some of these communities, it's your doctors and your lawyers who still can't afford, a you know, an average-priced $5 million home in Aspen, but they need a place to live. It's interesting, and some communities are being really progressive with it, and some are... Maybe not so much, um, it's, no, but no one has that silver bullet. But the one thing that they all know they need to do is somehow regulate and curtail, in many ways, the short-term rental boom that has pinched the supply of long-term housing.
1: One thing that is noticed uh, watching from the East Coast uh, is the stark difference between how an Aspen skiing company and Avail Resorts treats uh, how they speak about climate issues. Um, And I'm curious if you've seen any shift, obviously Colorado a leader in a lot of green initiatives uh, around the country, Um, if you've seen any kind of shift since a Trump election um, in regards to, you know, mobilization on climate topics at all.
0: Well, you know, just on social media, definitely seeing a lot of, uh, Push even today as we're talking to keep the Paris Accords um, intact, um, urging President-elect Trump to, you know, keep that keep that intact. In, in um, you see, Aspen Skiing is, is unusual in that they are really really focused on, on climate change and addressing that. They use methane captured from a local coal plant to power all their resorts and all their hotels um, in the Roaring Fork Valley. Very progressive. Um, they've moved beyond simply doing, you know, green things and installing green programs to lobbying for, you know, climate change legislation, whether it's, you know, carbon taxes or caps and, you know, different different programs like that. And that's where, you know, Aspen Skiing is head and shoulders above as a leader, not just even in the ski industry, but in all industry as, you know, one of the greenest companies out there. The resorts has a lot of green programs too and uh, most all resorts do have a very, you know, extensive green programs it's it's whether or not they're going to take it to that next step and follow the Aspen skiing and actually become climate change, you know, lobbyists and fighters and advocates and you know really working Washington and supporting their supporting their, you know, congressional leaders who who are, you know, in the same fight with them to uh, you know, to to stop this this warming trend. At the same time, you know when you when you start looking at companies that are publicly traded and have to answer to shareholders and are dealing with, you know, emergency crises, uh, you know, probably housing goes before climate change and you know the need for more efficient, maybe snowmaking systems and you know it seems like a lot of things come up, and can find their way in front of the line, before sending money to certain congresspeople or or you know, going to D C and and testifying at a climate change committee hearing or or anything like that. You know, the industry is especially if you're answering to quarter shareholders who maybe aren't on the same page as asthma skiing. Um, if that fight is going to continue, I would see it continuing from the you know, billionaire owners, the Lewis Bacons, the the Crown family, the Holding family, these you know, super wealthy um, resort owners who can maybe you know, they're a little more nimble when it comes to maneuvering on principle like that versus, uh, you know, answering to shareholders.
1: I was checking out your Vimeo page here a couple days ago before I knew I was going to chat with you and saw some of those uh, pow edits with your dog, Gravy. I assume Gravy's still with us? Oh, yeah. Nice. When's the last time you got out with him?
0: No, oh, we try to go. We are, I've started living in Eagle. We start um, bike riding a lot, even in the winter. So we fat bike a lot. And there's a couple of trails out here that are a lot of fun. And he, he likes to do that, and uh, he's he's loves the snow, loves the snow. He's a really good backcountry dog. Um, I've always taken all my dogs skiing with me, and I know that might not be super popular with some people, but my dogs love it. And um, you know, if you can keep them away from skis and, and train them well to to follow instead of kind of go ahead and, and turn around, um, it works pretty well in there. It really is nothing like going for a big ski with a happy galloping hound it's always uh really sort of swells my heart to take the dogs out and watch how good they sleep that night after tunneling through several feet of powder
1: we'll give gravy a pat on the head for us and uh jason really appreciate all your work for boy 20 years at the denver post uh commendable and amazing reporting over the years and uh keep it up
0: hey thanks alex i really appreciate it
1: thanks jason yeah Thanks to Jason Blevins for the time and for decades of quality reporting. Also want to thank Waterbury Sports in downtown Waterbury, Vermont, for being my go-to spot for replacing my old gear when I break it. Wintry Mix is made possible with support from VPR and their members. Subscribe to Wintry Mix on your iPhone, Android, or wherever you like your podcasts. And toss a rating or review if you appreciate the efforts. Really, it is helpful com is the website, and follow on social for maybe useful content. If you're a math major, you know that since this is episode 40, there are 39 episodes waiting for you if you've missed some. Later.
0: Um, this pro slackliner. Named Mickey Wilson, who's going to be a folk hero forever, he is skiing down a basin. Notices a buddy is hanging from a chairlift by his backpack, and he's unconscious. It's like wrapped around his neck. They try to build a little pyramid underneath him to to help support him. Can't can't do that. So Mickey climbs up a lift tower and scoots. I mean, a hundred plus feet on the top of this lift cable down to his buddy. And Ski Patrol throws him a knife, and he cuts the guy loose.
1: That's. Not something you see every day.